Hope you're counting those shopping days and not waiting like some people until the 24th to do your shopping. Although I will tell you this from personal experience, uh, that when you go out on the 24th, uh, it just is, you just take a lot less time to do it. Uh, you're in a hurry, you're focused, that adrenaline is rushing, you're desperate, you're a little scared. And it's amazing how you, you won't count your dollars nearly as carefully and you'll just get the job done. So uh, if I see any of you out there, uh, wave at me as I go by. All right. We are studying Galatians chapter 2. And we have just studied two sections that are very important. The first one is that opening part of chapter 2 where <clears throat> Paul publicly confronts his fellow apostle and his traveling partner, Barnabas, because you remember what they did? They were fellowshipping with Gentiles, which was unheard of before the time of Christ, the New Testament church. They were completely separate. If you were Jewish, you had certain signs that marked you off. One was circumcision. The other was Sabbath keeping. And then there was also a separation from non-Jewish people, from the Gentiles. And that was part of your religious devotion. And you would never never sit down at table with a Gentile. You would never enter a Gentile's house. You would never, you would never go play golf with a Gentile. Uh, there would be complete separation. And what happened with the church was uh, that we began to see for the first time Jew and Gentile worshiping God together. And there was one reason. They were both Christians. And... There's a reason that faith in Christ brings these two very disparate people together. And Paul explains that. But he was objecting to Peter and Barnabas who removed themselves from eating with the Gentiles when they saw some old traditionalist, what we call Judaizers. They were Christians, but they were Christians who believed in keeping Jewish custom, that it was Christ's work plus the all the the ceremonial law and the and the as well as the uh, moral law of the Old Testament, and when Barnabas and Peter saw them enter, they left the Gentiles out of probably embarrassment, and Paul says it was hypocrisy because he knows that Peter and Barnabas didn't believe in that, but they were only doing it to image manage with the Judaizers who entered. Now, when it comes to verses fifteen sixteen. We saw last week what the underlying doctrinal motivation was. Paul reminds the Galatians of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He says, that's the reason that you can't remove yourself from some group of people. That's the reason that the love that is in the church must be for all people, regardless of their ethnicity or their national background or even their religious history or their moral history. It must be a love for everyone as family, as brothers and sisters, and they must be treated that way because of this thing. We were all made right before God in the same way. And he's saying to Peter and Barnabas and now to the Galatians, the Jewish people were not made right because they performed certain outward signs, like circumcision in particular is the issue here, or because they kept the Sabbath, or because... They segregated themselves from everybody. That's not the reason they were God's people. The reason is because Christ stands in our place and His righteousness alone 
accounts for our righteousness before God, and therefore we all have the same righteousness. That's what makes us all the same family. Now that's his point in verses 15 to 16. And Luther said about this doctrine that we discussed last week, he says, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) And here's what Luther is saying. Now, you already heard me say, I I, I think Luther missed it in some points, including the point we'll be discussing today. But uh, Luther was right on this, that you can't live a godly life without this doctrine. And there's a reason for it. And that is that your heart must be at rest with the Lord. And it is of a restful, great, grateful heart that we then are moved to live the Christian life. And Luther says you have to believe it, teach it to others regularly, and beat it into their heads. And here's why. Because it is our nature to want to justify ourselves. It is our nature, as we said last time, to want to be right Well, that's fine because we were made to be right. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are made, you are declared right. Before all the watching world, Jesus Christ declares you right. However, what we tend to do as human beings is to make ourselves right by our own performance and our own power. And because of that strong tendency, we take, we take, uh, we make every effort, even in our religion, to distort that religion so that it becomes something we're performing and can take credit for. It's just amazing. And it doesn't matter whether you're Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, whatever you are. You will go to church and you will try by your flesh. You won't even realize you're doing this. But you will distort the doctrine that is here in Galatians 2, 15 and 16, and you'll distort it into something you're supposed to do. Now, most of my pastoral counseling is with Presbyterians. And that's what I find week after week after week. Luther is right. We must beat it into each other's heads. Now, we beat it into each other's heads pastorally, <laughs> lovingly. We just, you know, so much of our work, if you're involved in encouraging other brothers in the faith, much of your work is to remind us what Jesus Christ has done for us. I, I preach the gospel a lot more in my office than I ever get to in public. Because it's just over and over again beating this into people's heads. Remember, yes, you you messed up. Yes, you did. Indeed, yeah. But remember that that's not the, the ground of your righteousness before God. And when people begin to believe it, you can see the belief taking place. You can see the relief. You can see the joy and the gratitude. And our obedience must always be coming from gratitude for what He's done for us, not pride or hope in what we have done for ourselves. So I believe that these verses 15 and 16 that we studied last week are, uh, are absolutely essential to your Christian experience. And we looked at some of those so what's in about two minutes last week, unfortunately, because they really need to be thought about. You look at those so what's from last week, and you'll see that there's no reasonable ground of assurance of your salvation apart from that doctrine. If point oh 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 one percent of your acceptance before God 
depends upon your performance. You should be scared to death. <laughs> Literally, scared to death. You ought to be terrified because that's all it takes for you to screw this up. And believe me, I know you well enough, you will screw that point oh 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 one percent up. And the part you were supposed to play, it sounds like we've got bees flying around in here, this PA system. If anybody knows how to fix that, let us know. Obviously, we don't know how to fix that. It's just, it sounds like bees floating around. Some of you were thinking, I had a rough night last night, man. There's something going on right now. It's, it's the PA system. Uh, but if we depend upon any part of it for ourselves, we cannot be assured. Because if we know ourselves well, and if we're really humble about our own, our own weaknesses and our own likeliness to screw things up, then we don't want to put any of our trust on ourselves. It's not what Jesus did for us plus faith. No, the faith comes from Jesus. It's all in Jesus. And when we get it in his hands, then we really can rest secure. And then it's not pride for us to say, I know, I know I'm going to heaven. It's humility. The reason I know I'm going to heaven is because it has nothing to do with my performance. It has to do with his performance. And I want to be humble enough to acknowledge that it has nothing to do with me. And therefore, my assurance flows out of a humility. Now, that's, that's where you build your assurance of faith. It's in recognizing your righteousness is, as we said last week, an alien righteousness. It's something accomplished outside of me that is the ground of my acceptance. Now, obviously, when I say that, once again, there are all kinds of questions because we are the same as the people 2,000 years ago to whom Paul was writing. And whenever Paul wrote on this doctrine, he always anticipated an objection. And the objection goes like this. Well, if it depends completely on Jesus Christ, if my acceptance before God is based solely on what he accomplished well, let's go raise hell together. What difference does it make how I live? As a matter of fact, the more I sin, the more I experience His grace. That is the objection that He anticipates every time. You get it here in the text we have today. You get it real explicitly in Romans chapter 3. Same objection as He anticipates. Now, here, here would be my first point about this. If you understand what he's saying about justification, you will have the same objection. In other words, that is the natural objection to the doctrine of justification. So if you understand it clearly, then the flesh in you will ask that question, why not sin all the more? If your understanding of justification obligates you to provide something for it or you're not going to get it, then you won't have this objection. Paul's not talking to you because you don't believe his, his doctrine of justification. But if you believe his doctrine, you will have the objection that he anticipates. That's the reason he anticipates it because it is a, in a certain way, it's a logical objection. And we're going to see how he shows this. It's not so logical as you think. But it is at least prima facie a logical objection. So the biblical doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone 
does lead to that question. Now let's look at how he puts it here. It's a little bit, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to grasp, I think, actually in Galatians than it is in Romans. And there's a different nuance to this one in Romans, as we'll see in a moment. But let's look at verse 17. Well, we'll back up with 15 and read our verses from last week and then follow through the rest of the chapter. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. All right. So what has happened is in the first 10 verses, uh, uh, I'll even say the first 14 verses, Paul has objected to Peter and Barnabas withdrawing from the Gentiles. Then when you come to verses 15 and 16, he gives you the doctrinal reason why he objects to the withdrawing from them. Now when we come to verses 17 to 21, he's going to press his argument. He argues his case. Now notice the first thing he says in in verse 17, that is that justification through faith alone is not unlawful. Now, there are different ways to interpret this verse. Scholars have different approaches to it. Uh, but the underlying argument is, it, it seems to be, since Paul has said that it's an issue between Jews and Gentiles, that they're saying if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident or someone thinks that we ourselves have become Gentile sinners. In other words, we've gone over to the other side. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Or it could be this. If it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, that is that it's revealed that, hey, these people haven't stopped sinning when they got justified, then does this mean that Christ promotes sin? He's justifying sinners and they're just remaining sinners. In both cases, either way you want to interpret it, the Apostle Paul is saying absolutely not. It's a very strong objection. Now, the argument is that the Judaizers would be making that Paul anticipates is that his doctrine of justification is going to lead to moral license to abandoning the church and going with these Gentile sinners, to abandon the way of morality and go to the way of immorality. And here's what Paul is going to be saying in this text. He's saying, yes, indeed, that seems to be the logical objection. But you're leaving an important point out. And here's the point he's going to follow with. That when we are justified by faith alone, and that is that our acceptance before God is solely on the ground of an alien righteousness accomplished for us by Jesus Christ, and we access that righteousness through faith, which is not a 
work for which we get merit because as we're told in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, faith is a gift of God. It's given to us. It's a free gift. So we didn't earn that either. It's part of the gift. But when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, something else has also happened to us. We are not left unchanged. This is what's being left out. Now let me go back to Romans and show you the argument there. Then we'll come back and see his argument here. But go over with me to Romans chapter 6, and this would be page 1820, uh, rather 1818, and look at it with me there. Here's a similar, similar argument that Paul is anticipating after he stated justification by faith in Romans chapter 3. I'm sure you remember when we covered this 12 years ago. In Romans chapter 3, he has a clear description of being justified by the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when we get to chapter 6, here's what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, or absolutely not. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you, may, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Here's what's being said. He is saying you have not only been justified, you have been morally transformed. Or we could say you've been born again. So If you have been justified, you have also been regenerated. And that regeneration brings you in union with Christ. And just as he died on the cross, you have died to your old self. And you're no longer bound to it. The bondage is broken because of your union with Christ. And so you can see how he's saying here, Heck no, do you go on sinning that grace may abound? What are you talking about? He's saying that's a silly question. You've left out something. Your, 
Your objection that seems so logical is really not logical because you left out a huge component of your salvation, which is that God Himself has given you new birth, has given you new life, and you've been brought into union with Christ. So, you want to know how to live a holy life? He says, account yourselves or reckon yourselves dead to sin. That is, realize who you are and live in light of the new creation that you are. So often, you know, we're told that we're butterflies. We spend most of our time just walling around in the dust, throwing dust all over ourselves, trying to act like a caterpillar. But you've been made to be a butterfly, so fly. Now, that's his point. That's the answer to the objection. Let's go back to Galatians uh, chapter 2, and you'll see that there's a similar way in which he addresses it here. He's saying, if you look at verses 18 through 21, but particularly verse 18, uh, uh, the second point we want to look at today, legalism and nobism are unlawful. He's saying, here's the irony. It is not, it is not that those justified by faith are promoting sin or promoting Christ being the promoter of sin. It's just the opposite. He said, look at verse 18. He says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. I destroyed the idea in Judaism that justification, my acceptance with God, is based upon the badges of Judaism that I wear, my circumcision, my Sabbath keeping, and and my conformity to uh, the 613 laws. I've destroyed that. Now, if I go rebuild it, rebuild a system of justification based upon the merit of the one being justified, I'm the lawbreaker. And he's basically saying, you guys are the lawbreakers. You Judaizers who are trying to rebuild what we tore down. Christ tore down the walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. You're rebuilding them based on a system of merit, a system of self-justification that is actually breaking the law of God because the law of God is justification by faith. Now, there are two, I use two fancy words here, legalism and nomism. Let's talk about them both. First of all, legalism. Here's what it is. Legalism is gaining God's favor by works of the law. Gaining God's favor by works of the law. That's legalism. Uh, the word legal just means law, so I am I'm justified by keeping the law. Nomism also comes from the word law, nomos, N-O-M-O-S is a Greek word for law. But nomism is gaining God's favor by observing Jewish customs. There's a slight nuance here. And there's a lot of scholarly debate we're not getting into because I'm not sure I could get us out of the woods if I took us in there. But nomism is identifying ourselves with a group. And this has to do with covenantal thinking, that if I'm part of the people of God, then I am justified. Now, there's a sense in which that is absolutely true. But the way in which I become part of the people of God is through receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ personally on my behalf for my justification. And because of that, I enter the people of God. Nomism tends to say there's certain outward things that mark you as a person of God, and if you're among the people of God, you will be saved. Now, most religions are that way. They're nomistic. For example, in Islam, 
if you keep the five pillars, if you simply say, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, if you go to uh, prayer five times a day, if you, but basically if you just say what I just said and you don't renounce it, then you are basically a Muslim. It is based, it's called an ecto-religion. It's based on what you do on the outside. It's your conformity to certain outward standards. Most religions are this way. That's what makes you a participant in that religion. Now, in the Christian religion, it's both. It's endo and ecto. There are certain outward things that we conform to that make us part of the group, but the heart of the matter is endo. That's the reason that Christianity in the West is very personal because it begins with your relationship with the Lord and then you become part of a people. Well, what we're going to see is those who either depend upon their own personal law-keeping or they depend upon their common badges, communal badges that make them a member of a group, they are the ones who are actually unlawful. And here's why. In verse 18, you see, first of all, this is a legalism and gnomism restore justification by works of the law. They rebuild what Paul destroyed. They're trying to put back up some system of merit. And when you do that, you undermine the entire Christian religion. You undermine your relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a story of the man who went to heaven and Peter was standing at the pearly gates and he said to Peter, well, I'd really like to get in. Peter said, well, you'll, you'll need to qualify. Well, what do I need to qualify? And Peter said, you need a thousand points. <clears throat> man cleared his throat. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> okay, a thousand points. He said, all right. He said, I was a missionary to the Middle East. Had my house burned down four times. Had six kids. Five of those were missionaries. Two in Africa two in South America, one also in the Middle East. All of us together, the way I added up, we led, we led 4,000 people to faith in Jesus Christ. And we established 20 churches in those lands. And our, my children married Christian spouses, and they had grandchildren, and they're all walking with the Lord. And they've all made public professions of faith, and they're leading people to Christ too. And he stopped to catch a breath. Peter said, that's one. <laughs> Now, Paul's point is that's zero. <laughs> but if you're trying to get points, you're just not going to get there. There's, there's no way there from here. Because as we see in our own hearts, everything that we do, in fact, leading someone to Jesus Christ, if you effectively do that, you had mixed motives. It was not a perfect work. And God is perfect. And to do something that, that demands by justice that he reewards you by justice. Pure, pure divine justice. It'd have to be a perfect work. Now, Jesus earned that. Jesus' work demands justice. That's the reason that John can say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He doesn't say faithful and merciful. He says he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does he say just? Because the work of Jesus Christ demands divine Forgiveness as a matter of justice because Jesus has fully satisfied the payment required for our sin. Therefore, God's justice. We're being saved by his justice in our justification because Jesus' righteousness is 
perfect. Now we plead for his mercy that Jesus will be the one considered in our place. And that's what comes when we trust in him. He is in our place. But it is by justice that the accounting takes place. So don't depend upon legalism. You are simply rebuilding what the apostle destroys. I remember reading various stories about one of my favorite Baptist preachers, Charles Spurgeon, in the 19th century in England. And Spurgeon hated legalism. And, and uh, Spurgeon, you may know, was known for uh, a number of things. One was his cigars. He loved his cigars. And one day, an elderly woman came to him uh, after church, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, uh, she said, I don't think you should be smoking those cigars. And he said, Madam, I believe in moderation. And she said, and what is moderation? He said, one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, actually what happened some years later, he did see a, a, a bus in London that was advertising the cigars he liked, and it said, you know, smoke this kind of cigar, the kind Mr. Spurgeon likes. That's when he stopped smoking his cigars. But on another occasion, the great evangelist D.L. Moody from America went over to UK, and he went to call on Mr. Spurgeon. And he went to Mr. Spurgeon's flat, knocked on the door, and Spurgeon came out smoking a cigar. And, uh, and D.L. Moody said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, you're a Christian, you smoke. And Charles Spurgeon said, Mr. Moody, you're a Christian and you're fat. <laughs> you know, you've got to be ready for all comers, you know. So you don't let anything get you down. You don't, let, you don't judge yourself and you don't allow anyone else to judge you based upon certainly things that, that aren't even in the Scriptures. But even if they are, it's not as though we're, we're cavalier about our sin. We'll get to that in a moment. But we don't allow ourselves to be judged by our performance. Now, here's what you get with the Apostle Paul. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Turn over a few pages in your Bible. Let's look at this classic moment where Paul talks about some of these nomistic badges that make him a member of a community. He talks about some of his accomplishments. And notice what he says about them. In Philipp- This is page 1922. <clears throat> In Philippians 3, verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs. Who are the dogs? They're the Judaizers. Now, you know, in Paul's day, dogs of the Gentiles were known to be dogs. And Paul just switches it. He says, No, the dogs are the Judaizers, the ones who want to add to the righteousness of Christ. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. See, it's all about circumcision there too. For it is we who are the circumcision. Wow, what a statement. He's saying, fellow believers, we have the circumcision. Don't let anybody tell you you don't have what you need in order to be numbered among the people of God. You've got the circumcision. Of course, the Gentiles are saying, we do? I didn't think I was circumcised. Well, he's saying it's a spiritual circumcision, and we are the people of the circumcision. So he's basically saying, he's saying that this new community of Jew and Gentile is the Israel of God. We are the circumcision of God. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, in this case, he means in the flesh of circumcision. But it's the same principle. We put no confidence in our performance in our ability to gain credit with God. Though I myself, look at this verse 4, strange. Though I myself 
have reasons for such confidence. Paul is saying, you want to you play the religion game and who's got credit and who's done stuff? I can play that game. I've got reasons. And he starts to list all this stuff, shows us all the diplomas on his wall. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, let me tell you how zealous I am, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, and I believe, if I remember correctly, that really in Greek just simply says righteousness, not legalistic righteousness. That's an interpretive twist there. Faultless. He's saying, look, if, if, you, if we're going to talk about people conforming to the law for their righteousness, let me tell you, I obeyed 613 laws scrupulously, faultless. No one ever laid a charge against me on all the Old Testament law. Woo-hoo, watch out, okay. But look at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them literally dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see what he's saying? I've got, I can make a case for myself, but I consider that crap. It's not just nothing. It stinks. It's less than nothing because it actually gets in my way of knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. When I know Christ is when I'm really trusting Him completely for my standing before God. I don't want my own righteousness, He says. My own self-made righteousness. I don't want to add anything to the righteousness of Christ. I just want Christ's righteousness. I don't see how it could be any stronger point being made here that legalism and gnomism restore justification by works of the law the very thing paul is trying to tear down and beginning with his own life he tore it down he took the diplomas off the wall they're they're an embarrassment to him they're the negative of trusting in christ now b look at verse 19 legalism and gnomism not only restore what paul was tearing down but they misapply the law He says, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. He's saying that in the old way of thinking about things, I am watching the law and I'm following the law in order to build my own merit or righteousness, in order to build my own case. He says, now... I died of that. And now I'm alive to God. And in Philippians 
3, you see what it means for him to be alive to God. He's alive to what God has done for him in Christ. He wants to know Christ and be found in him and have Christ's righteousness for his own righteousness. Now, to to understand this uh, more clearly, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 7. Let's go just beyond what we read just a few moments ago. This would be 18, page 1820. And you may remember... Chapter 7 of Romans where Paul says, you know, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So people will look at Romans 7 and they'll ask this question. Is Paul speaking of himself as a Christian or a non-Christian? Which one is it that gets frustrated? And you have different schools of thought who will use Romans 7 to say, hey, you see, don't be so frustrated because you can't get it right. Paul couldn't either because even as a... An apostle, he says, the very things I want to do, I don't do, and the very things I do want to do, I don't, and so on. Some will say, oh, no, that's not Paul as a Christian. That's Paul as a non-Christian saying how frustrating it is to to be a non-Christian, and now he's delivered from it by the Spirit. Now, actually, I don't think he's talking about either person. I don't think he's talking about a person, a Christian or a non-Christian. I think what he's talking about is a way of sanctification. And he's saying there's a new way to be sanctified. The old way is the way of the law. The new way is, is the way of the Spirit. Now, and the reason I say that, look at the part that introduces this in Romans 7, verse 4. So, my brothers, and you see the same kind of language here, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So here he says it again. We've died to the law. That you might belong to another to him who is raised from the dead. Now, in the previous sentences, he talks about marriage when your spouse dies. And he says, when your spouse dies, you're free to marry another. He says, in the same way, when you die to the law, you're free to marry another. You're no longer married to the law. Now you're married to Christ. You're married to God. So through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. And who is that other? That's Christ. To him who was raised from the dead. In order that we might bear fruit to God. And we'll see, this is all for the purpose of our experiencing a growth in our personal righteousness. So it is that we may bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, verse 5, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now, here's what he's saying. When we were not trusting in Christ, and we looked at the law, and it says, do not steal, here's what it made us do. Steal. (laughs) I remember a friend of mine, his eight-year-old was in third grade, and they had had family devotions on on, on not lying, and, and they talked about not cheating and all this kind of stuff at school. And he was taking a little test in third grade, and he said, the more, he told his daddy after he got caught, the more I thought about not cheating, the more my eyes just went over to the other paper. You know, it's just like wet paint. Do not touch, you know, wet paint. And you go, you know. Or if, if, there's a, if there's a little hole in the wall and it says, please do not peek through this hole. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Paul says, that's human fallen nature. You're told not to do something. That's the very thing you want to you do. You know, if you don't want your kids to go to church, tell them to go to church. If you do want them to go to church, tell them not to go to church. You know, some of our, the folks in our youth group, some of the parents say, you know, it's 
Our youth group's so popular now, it's great to be able to discipline your children by telling them, if you don't straighten up, you can't go to youth group. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. They'll, they'll do the opposite, you know, of what you want them to do. That's what Paul is saying. But now, verse 6, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve now in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, there's the verse that helps you understand Romans 7. It's not a person we're talking about. It's a way. It's the new way versus the old way. Romans 7 is the old way. Romans 8 is the new way. And Paul is saying, if you try to do this the old way, if you're going to try to live your Christian life the old way, here's the way you do it. It's called paint by the numbers. I could, I could do a portrait up here, and you'd, you'd, if you stand back far enough, you'd say, man, Wilson's a really good artist. Well, all I was doing was, you, you did paint by the numbers when you were a kid. You know, you have little parts that are marked 8, 9, 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, and then you have your palette of colors, and they're all numbered, and you put the right number in the little place. And before, before long, you've got this portrait. You go, wow, I'm not a bad artist, you know, paint by the numbers. That's way, the way many people approach sanctification. They live by the numbers. One through ten, the Ten Commandments. And they, do not steal? Okay, I will not steal. Uh, do not commit adultery? Okay, we're not going to commit adultery. And they, they do it down here, and they've truncated, left heaven out of it, left God out of it, left Christ and the Spirit out of it. They're just going to be working with the law. Paul says you've died to that. That's not the way of sanctification. Here's the way. When he says at the end of the chapter, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God who has delivered us. And then he goes on to say, to speak about the life of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. So we die to paint by the numbers. And we live to the Spirit. And we actually talk with Him. We walk with Him. We commune with Him. We're united to Him. We ask the Lord Jesus to send His Spirit in fullness and take over our lives. And we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We're consciously leaning upon the Holy Spirit. This is the other part of our life. It's not just that we trust Christ for our acceptance. We're trusting the Spirit for our growth. And it's an entirely different way. The Pharisees never did it this way. And anyone who adds to their justification doesn't do it that way either. But when you are trusting completely Jesus Christ for your justification, you're trusting the Spirit completely to work through you. That's what the apostle is saying in Romans chapter 7. He's saying the same thing in Galatians 2. Back to that chapter now. He's saying legalism and nomism actually misapply the law. They consider the law as something that we can do with a little moral lift from the preacher on Sunday morning, a little encouragement from my accountability group, a little bit of image management from people at work, and you know I'm going to be fine because I, I now believe that the law is true. Paul says it's not going to work. You're misapplying the law. We died to that. We're through with that. We're in another realm altogether. Now, uh, C, this will be verse 20. Legalism and nomism miss the keys to sanctification. This is basically what we've been saying. Legalism and nomism miss the keys to sanctification. Of course the, the Apostle Paul is concerned about how we live life. Of course he's concerned that we conform to the moral law of God. Of course he is. And if you have any questions about that, for example, again, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans 3, you remember after his discourse on justification by faith alone in Christ alone, he, he says... Verse 31, the very end of Romans 3, do we then nullify the law by this faith? 
Not at all, he says. Rather, he says, we uphold the law. So by trusting in Jesus Christ for your justification, your acceptance before God, Paul is saying, only then are you able to uphold the law. The Pharisees don't uphold the law. They claim to be upholding the law. But he says, they are building what I just tore down so that we might build up again the edifice of Jesus Christ. And I do uphold the law. And he says, here's the problem. He says in verse 20, this famous verse, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The first thing is the crucified life. I've been crucified with, with Christ. When Charles Wesley was, confer- uh, was uh, converted years ago, on his conversion experience, he said this verse played an important part. And here's what he said. I labored, waited, and prayed to feel those words who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ who loved us. And it's in that contemplation that we then understand we too are crucified. Now, what does this mean? You remember that Jesus Christ told, taught his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and be persecuted, be beaten, and he would be crucified. They, Peter objected. And the Lord explained to him that that was the message of Satan to take away the cross. And then Jesus said to him, and if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is, you must do the same thing. What in the world is that all about? Take up a cross? What does this mean? It means this, that we die to our own selfish, sinful ambitions. We die to trying to put ourselves forward as someone who's morally deserving of God's favor. We die to ourselves and our pride. We die to our egos. We kill it with the cross. You see what Paul is saying? When we trust the cross work of Christ, what keeps us from being morally licentious is that we've taken up a cross too. And if you haven't taken up your cross, well, you haven't trusted his cross because the two of them go together. And this is where I would critique Luther and much of the Protestant movement is that we've been so strong about justification by faith alone in Christ alone that we've forgotten the teaching about regeneration and the necessity for sanctification. I mean, the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, you will not see the Lord. So there must be a taking up of our own cross. That happens simultaneously with our trusting in His cross. But the point is, we're not trusting our taking up our cross for our merit before God for our acceptance. That's the reason we can have confidence because it's His cross in which we trust for our acceptance, our justification. But we take up our cross in order to know Him and live with Him. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And then he said, And the fellowship of His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. So the reason for taking up our cross is so that we would know Christ who took up His cross. We want that cross because we want Him. And that's what He did when He lived here. And we want to know His life. We're drawn to it out of gratitude and love, not out of fear and guilt. You see the difference? So Paul is saying here, look, you needn't worry about my being immoral or setting other people to be immoral. We've been crucified with Him. We've died to the law. 
But we've, we've identified with Jesus Christ completely in His death. And that's the reason that you find with the apostles a history of martyrdom. And that's the reason that you find in the church today a history of martyrdom all over the world every year, year after year. Why? We're simply walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ out of gratitude for what He's done for us. We want to know Him. Secondly, notice that they not only miss, the Judaizers not only miss the keys, uh, the key of the crucified life, but the key of life in Christ. Well, I no longer live. I died to myself, but I'm alive, man. Christ is alive in me. You find this phrase, in Christ, in one way or another, 164 times in Paul's letter, plus what he, uh, and that's excluding the pastoral epistle, so almost 200 times. It's a key concept. We don't have time to look at Colossians 2 here. But let me just say, what Paul says in Colossians 2 is that we are to walk in Christ. Or the NIV says to live in Christ. But the language is walk. Now in the Old Testament, we're told that Abraham walked before the Lord. We're told that Enoch walked with God. So walking before God or with God, that's all Old Testament language. But in the New Testament, you know what the language is? We walk in Christ. How do you walk in someone? You are so close to him and he is so pervasively in you. He is everywhere. He's around you. He's in you. He's through you. You're walking in him. That's how intimate it is. That is the key to our sanctification. It's our union with Christ. He says, you are the, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. We're organically connected to him. We're living life with the same life-giving sap, if you will. We're sharing the essentials of life. We share his DNA. We're in him organically. He says, I'm the head, you are the body. How much closer can you get to him than that? We are in the same body. He's the head of it. I'm the hand or the foot or the toenail or whatever I am. But I'm in the body. I'm connected to Him. I feel pain the way He feels pain. He feels my pain. I feel His joys. He feels my joys. We're one body. The other analogy, of course, is husband and wife. That Christ is the, the groom of the church. The, the church is the bride of Christ. We're integrally, integrally connected. That's what keeps us. It's our union with Christ and the regeneration that comes from that union. So I no longer live, right, but Christ lives in me. Then thirdly, uh, so often when we abandon justification by faith, we abandon the life of faith, the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith is not just for justification. It's that same faith that leads to sanctification. So if I trust in Christ and His work to be accepted before God, I also trust in Him and His work to move me every day out of gratitude to live for Him. And I also trust in the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Romans 8. I put faith, I lean on Him, the Holy Spirit of God, to work through me and live in me and to live His life through me. So it's by faith I'm leaning on Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, every day. That's the essence of the sanctified life. It's an intimate, personal dependence upon the one who loves you. That's where your sanctification will come from. And when you get out there, when you're looking at pornography, the last thing you're thinking about is the Holy Spirit. The last one you're feeling grateful for is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have separated yourself mentally, spiritually. You're in the wilderness. You're wandering around. You're not trusting in Him. 
The key is not for someone to smack you across the head until you're going to hell because of pornography. Now, that might get you to turn it off for the moment. But what's going to get you self-motivated and self-disciplined is faith in what Christ has done for you and who the Holy Spirit is and His willingness to work through you right now. There's where the moral life is. That's what the Apostle is teaching in Romans and in Galatians. And then he says, fourthly, that these folks who want to add to their justification miss the grateful life who loved me and gave himself for me. He teaches the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, that we've died, that we might live to God. We, we're delivered from the damnation of the law so that we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices for him. This is not for sissies. This is for grateful men who know that they've been saved completely once and for all and who are now thrust into his battle and they joyfully go in his name to serve. Well, we don't have time to finish up, but let's just, let me give you the words here anyway. D, legalism and nomism undermine the Christian essentials. That's the problem. That's the reason Paul is so exercised. That's the reason he's saying, I don't care if an angel from heaven comes to you and gives you another gospel, may he be damned too. Because this strikes at the vitals of your Christian experience. First of all, the grace of God. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. And if we add something to our justification, we're setting it aside. And also the cross of Christ. He says, if righteousness can be gained through your performance, if you think you can increase your acceptance with God, then Christ died for nothing. What do you need his death for? How silly would that be to say that Christ's death means nothing? That's, that's the ultimate silliness in the universe. And Paul says, that's my argument. So what you've had now in these past two weeks is, first of all, presentation of the doctrine of justification. And secondly, you have the arguments for it. So Paul often does that when he wants to beat it into our heads. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, our heads need your help. Our hearts need your help. Our bodies need your help. And we ask now for your help. Please set before us today the fullness of of our justification in Christ. Please set before us the completeness of it. Grant to us the assurance of its effectiveness before your throne. And then, Lord, please take hold of our spirits that we may look to you and not ourselves in order to live the life that enables us to know Jesus Christ. And with that prayer, Lord, we would go into this world in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.